Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. What a great time praising the one who sacrificed himself for us. As I was driving into the church to an empty building, I was again reminded that this building is not the church. This building would be an empty tilt-up concrete structure without the real church in it. And the real church is you. The real church is us. The real church is actually the body of Christ. And as we've gathered now virtually again to celebrate Good Friday, a day that we often ask ourselves to question what's so good about Good Friday, As you're joining us, perhaps on Facebook Live or Instagram Live or on our live stream or some other form of video communication, as you're staring at maybe a cell phone, a device, an iPad, or a television, you you might really be asking yourself, what is so good about Good Friday, especially this year? And the Lord shared with me while I was driving in something that I think is important for you to hear. We are experiencing ourselves the very thing that made Good Friday so painful for Jesus. And while we certainly could focus on the things that physically happened to him, to what was done to his body, We could talk about the crown of thorns. We could talk about the beating, the scourging. We could talk about what the gospels record as this inhumane treatment. And all of that is important. But I really desire for us to focus on one thing that I think each of us, because of our situation, can focus on in a very new, a very fresh in a very pointed way. And that is the loneliness that Jesus felt as he hung on the cross. That's the separation that Jesus felt from his own father while he paid the price for our sin. That's the abandonment that Jesus went through Perhaps some of you are feeling that right now. You're maybe in your living room. Maybe you're alone today. Perhaps there's just a handful in your living room. Maybe you're even outside watching on a device of some kind. But we are separated one from another. The thing that makes this building a place that's alive is the corpus sanctum. It's the sanctified body 
It's people. And we're forced to be separated. As we begin this service, as we think about what this day means, as we prepare our hearts and minds to receive at the communion table, it would be good for us to remind ourselves that this is also Passover to the Jewish people. It's a time when they remembered the deliverance that they received while they were in Egypt. As that tenth and final plague came, as the angel of death passed over the encampment of the Egyptians, and as that innocent lamb's blood was slain for them, and then spread on their doorposts and lintels of their home. So death passed them over. And so for us, as we celebrate Good Friday, death through Christ Jesus, dying on Calvary's cross, his death has paid the price for our sin and eternal death has passed us over. Would you pray with me? Father, we come. And Lord, we remember on this most holy of days. Oh, we look forward to Easter morning, to the cry, he is risen. But there's no Easter morning without mourning your death on Good Friday. And so today, as we celebrate the sacrifice that was made for us, we ask Holy Spirit, that you would bind us together in our loneliness and our separation. Lord Jesus, as you and your Father for the first time in all of eternity were separated at the cross as the sins of the world were laid upon you, as you died in our place, Lord, would you give us a measure of your loneliness that we might ponder it, what it cost to bring us into a right relationship by grace and through faith with you. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I have but a single verse for you that I want you to turn to. It's found in 1 Peter and in chapter 3. And it's just the 18th verse. But it's a verse that we can draw six things from before we turn our attention to celebrating the Lord's Supper. And it says there, For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive, in the spirit. What's so good? What is it that we think on today? It's hard for us to imagine what the disciples were going through because we're not really told what they were thinking. We're not told what they were doing beyond the abandonment that Jesus felt of the disciples because they all left him. Peter outright denied him. And of course, we're on the other side of the resurrection. So we're looking back at this time and we have to ask ourselves this question. What were they feeling? 
probably like many of you, they were feeling fear. They were feeling dismayed. Perhaps a bit of anger. Certainly even some hopelessness. In their moment in time, they were experiencing the pain of watching the Lord Jesus himself die. And so in light of that, it is proper for us to ask ourselves, how do we celebrate this incredible human tragedy? But at the same time, we ask ourselves that question, without the tragedy of the cross, there's no hope for us for Sunday. Without his sacrifice, without his death, without Jesus paying the price, without him being the just for the unjust. You see, for our problem is this, my problem is this. I am the unjust one. I always have been. I always will be. And in fact, the righteousness that now resides in my account isn't mine, it belongs to Christ. He placed it there. It's not my righteousness, it's his. And in that sense, he was and is my Passover. He's the reason that my sins are forgiven. He's the reason that I am delivered and you are delivered. And as our minds wander back some 2,000 years to the city of Jerusalem, to this Passover celebration, as Jesus on Palm Sunday is welcomed uh, into the homes of the Jewish people by virtue of his descent of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, as, as he's hailed as king, he's also being announced as the lamb, the one who would be slain. It's always seemed strange to me that the gospels are largely silent about the death of our Lord. There are very few details about what happened. And I'm sure that the Lord himself has reasons for these things. Why we are not told some of the intervening details that perhaps would be good for us to know. But the truth is we do know some things from the gospel accounts. And what we do know points us towards a death like no other death. Points us towards a sacrifice revealed to us. So what is good about Good Friday when we stop to think about it? What is it that really comes to mind? What are you pondering right now as you sit in your home? What is it that Good Friday means to you? There was a commentary that was actually written about the life of Jesus through the gospel authors, but it's very short. We know that according to John's gospel, that's the longest of the accounts of the crucifixion or at least the time leading up to it. The trials that happened to Jesus, six of them, all of them illegal. 
none of them right before the law or anyone else. We know that Pontius Pilate found Jesus innocent. And in fact, he kept trying to release him. We know that Jesus spoke not one word in his own defense, exactly as the prophet Isaiah said would happen. What we do know is we have a Galilean rabbi who now is being maltreated like no human being has ever been maltreated. We know that by the time Jesus gets to the cross, we have statements made by him, we have statements made by some thieves that are crucified with him. We have the Jewish leaders beginning to speak their things about him, including he saved others, but he can't save himself. The thieves remarking the truth, speaking forth that truth, we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Is how Luke records it in chapter 23 of Luke's gospel. But there is one cry that stands out to me in our time of isolation like no other cry from the cross. Jesus speaks seven different things from the cross, and one of them, to me, stands out during this time of our isolation. It's something that we can identify with in a fresh way. And I want to ask you to attempt to take yourself to that place with me, if you would. I want to tell you it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. I pray that there are some tears in your living room. I I pray that you begin to feel what Jesus felt for you and for me. Because he's going to cry out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God. My God. Why have you forgotten me? That didn't happen at the outset of the crucifixion. Jesus didn't cry those words from the depths of his soul as the nails were being driven into his hands and his feet. That's not what he said when the crown of thorns was beaten onto his head. That cry didn't come when the cross was lifted up and dropped into a three-foot-deep hole and his flesh ripped He made that cry when my sins were placed on him. When he, for the first time in all of eternity, was absent the fellowship of his father. When Father God turned his back on his son. I have two sons. And I cannot imagine ever, ever turning my back on my sons. 
I can't imagine walking away from them when they're in deep pain. I can't imagine hearing these words. Dad, don't leave me. Father, where are you? I can't imagine hearing that. It's too painful for me to think about. But this terrible mystery that the son became fatherless and the father became sonless in that moment. is perhaps in view for us in this isolation. Maybe in some small way, what we're going through with COVID-19 brings us to the place that we might be able to look at the cross and say, with the centurion, certainly this is the Son of God. Because no one could endure this. The significance of what happened to Jesus, what he surrendered in that moment is mind-boggling to me. That instantaneously, the moment the sins of my life were placed on Jesus, the intimate fellowship of the Father and the Son was torn to shreds. Because of me. I see in our verse six reasons why Good Friday is good. And not one of them is because I'm good. Not one of them is because what happened was good. But every one of these six things is because he is good and he loves us. He loved us enough to go through that separation. He loved us enough to allow the weight of the sins of the world to be placed on him, to deal with them permanently. Notice what it says at the beginning of this verse. For Christ also died for sins. And you have to ask yourself that word sins, it's plural. What sin? Whose sins? Which sins is this verse referring to? The fact of the matter is it's referring to your sins and my sins, our sins, the sins of the entire world. Every sin that's ever happened or will happen heaped upon Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God. And so the first thing that I see is that Jesus died for our sins, not his. That's one reason why Good Friday is good. 
And in that sense, what he did is he died for our sins in a penal way. You see, God requires complete righteousness for us to go to heaven. There's a penalty that's due for my sins. The price of that sin would be the forfeiture of my own life eternally if I had to pay for them myself. Someone had to pay for those sins and I couldn't pay the price myself. The penalty was too great. And so Jesus died in my place. He paid the penalty of my sins. That's every evil action. That's every improper thought. That's every wrong motivation. That is absolutely everything that I have ever done, will do, or may do in the future. That's why the Apostle Paul writes that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. I wasn't kind of sort of almost dead or partially alive. I was completely dead. I was without hope. The penalty was there. It needed to be paid. I couldn't pay it, so Jesus paid it for me on Calvary's cross. Forgive me. This is stuff that we have to think on, church. It's things we have to know in our hearts, believe in the depths of our soul, Not only did he pay the penalty, he died that that penal portion of the death. But he also did so in a priestly way. You see, there was yet another problem. Up until that point in time, the only person that could go in and visit God was the high priest. And only one day a year. In essence, every single time someone had to mediate for me. Someone had to go to God for me. Someone had to enter in beyond the veil for me and for you. But as Jesus died on the cross, God the Father saw what happened on the cross And though he took his eyes off of his own son, he also simultaneously tore the veil from the top to the bottom. In a priestly way, Jesus said, no more veil. All who will may come to as many as received him to them. He gave the power to become the sons of God, the children of God, the daughters of God, people who are now redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. No more mediator, no more priestly intervention, no more sacrifices of another kind, no more things needed to be done. Jesus changed all that at the cross and he died for the penalty of my sin, and he died for the priestly nature of never, ever having to do that again. It was once and for all. 
these reasons. Firstly, of course, he died for our sins and not his, but secondarily, notice what it says, for Christ also died for our sins once and for all. In other words, you don't need to die for your sins. I don't need to die for my sins. No one will ever need to die for their sins who are found in the grace of God. And he did so one time for all time. It doesn't have to be repeated. There's no more Yom Kippur. There's no more high priest going into the Holy of Holies. There's no more temporary reprieve from the penalties of my sin. There's no more blood of bulls and goats. There's now lasting satisfaction of the price that was on my head and on yours. God sees the blood of his own son and desires no more blood of anyone or anything else. It was once and for all. There's no more commotion in the temple. We never need to have it repeated. We are the bride of Christ. We're forever married to the king. There's a 1996 movie. It's actually a rom-com. And I know you're probably wondering, does Pastor Jeff ever watch such things? And the truth is, yes, I do. That movie starring Barbara Streisand and Jeff Bridges, it's a relational story about a couple that marries and they have the wrong expectations and they kind of, break apart, and by the end of the movie, they come back together, and the husband, Jeff Bridges, says to the wife, Barbara Streisand, he says, I want to be married to you, and she looks at him and says, you already are married to me. That's our relationship with the Lord. No matter what we do, no matter where we go, the price that was paid is sufficient to bring us to Christ We are married to him. We are the bride of Christ. And so he died once and for all. He doesn't have to die again every time you sin or I sin or we sin. He doesn't have to go to the cross again. It was sufficient the one time. We who live by faith and walk by faith, we are kept by faith. That grace seals us. That grace keeps us. A third thing that I see here, and this is so important to me personally, for Christ died once and for all, but who was it that did what for whom? It was the just for the unjust. It was the innocent for the guilty. We, we now, in our time, don't even like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about guilt. We don't want to admit that we have a problem. Everybody wanders around. Well, the problem's not me. I don't have a problem. 
Well, the fact of the matter is, before a holy God, we all have a problem. And that problem is sin. And I want you to hear something from your pastor. Your sin is bad. Your sin is awful. And so is mine. Your sin is an offense to God. Your sin is so bad that if you kept it, if you cling to it without the grace of God, then you will perish eternally. That's how bad our sin is. But the just one in this verse, the one who's perfect in all of his ways, the one who is yet without sin, said, I'll die for Jeff. His life was forfeited for mine. Church, do you know how wonderful that is? Do you know how amazing that is? That the perfectly just one would say, I'll do it. The same truth Paul expresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. You might be asking yourself, how does that even happen? How is it that we get moved from the loneliness of sinfulness that will destroy us forever into his marvelous light that brings life and that life eternal. Jesus, the just one, took the injustice of your life and took it on himself. And so in a legal way, in a transactional way, in a legal transaction, Jesus took the full weight of every sin that you've ever done and ever will do. And he said, put those into my account. And then he took the full weight of his perfection, his beauty, his glory, his righteousness. He takes our sins in his account and he puts his righteousness in our account. A fully legal transaction, which God, by the way, honored when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When he rent the veil, when the veil was torn, God was saying the transaction is complete. No more blood of bulls and goats. You can go straight in. My son paid the price. He judged his own son in my place. Our sins were imputed, or you could use the word credited, to his account. But the crazy part is that's not everything. It would be wonderful enough if Jesus just simply took all my sins. But notice what it says the just for the unjust. 
You see, I still have a problem. I could be without my own sins and tomorrow I'm going to add to those sins. So the moment God takes away my sins, I will add to them the following day, maybe today. So the problem is this has to be permanent and it has to be ongoing. It has to take care of my past sins. It has to take care of my present sin and it has to take care of my future sins. And the only way that can happen is not only do my sins have to be placed on Christ, but he has to place his full righteousness in its place. Because I can't get to heaven with any amount of unrighteousness. And I can only get to heaven if the only thing God sees is perfection. And the only perfection that exists in the entire universe is God's perfection found in Christ Jesus. And so legally, fully, God is completely righteous. God demands righteousness from us. There is a penalty for unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift, the eternal gift, the gift of Jesus Christ is righteousness that is imputed to us. And so what God demands God freely provides through his son, Jesus. A fourth thing, it is that transaction, this legal transaction that occurred that we call justification. The full removal and the full payment of my sins and in its place, the full righteousness of God put there. The result of that, notice what it says, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. There's a reason for this. Can I tell you that the story of the cross does not begin in Jerusalem? The story of the cross does not begin in Jerusalem. There is a presupposition that occurs, and that is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In other words, the cross isn't an afterthought. It's the only thought of God. God, from the instant that Adam and Eve were put into the garden, had the cross in view. The cross, the story of the cross, began in the garden. Why? Because it's there that Adam and Eve sinned. It's there that guilt began to build up in the lives of every person that's ever walked on this planet. I would be justly condemned by the original sin, not just my own, but the sin that I've inherited. So in that sense, those things that I've inherited, that evil part of my nature, that sinfulness of my thought life, those things that I think on that I shouldn't think on because I have a sin nature. You see, when you look at sin that way, it adds a whole new list to the things that are not okay with God. I had a conversation via email this last week with a young lady that had called in with a, with a question. She'd, she'd written in. And that question was centered around the abortion issue and 
whether I thought that there was any case where it might be okay with God. And of course, to that, I responded, no, it is never okay with God. But I did say that it can be forgiven by God like all other sin. And she wrote me back saying, why do you always harp on sin? And I sent her a very kind note back. I said, because sin is the issue. Sin is my issue. It's not just your issue. And she wrote me a, a, a long kind of list of like, well, why do you talk about drugs? And why do you talk about alcohol and homosexuality and pot smoking and all these things? Because it makes people feel guilty. And I wrote back very kindly. I said, exactly. We're supposed to feel guilt about our sin. It's supposed to bother us. We're not supposed to be okay when what we do doesn't line up with who we are as Christians. You see, in our society, we've begun to think that calling sin, sin is a bad thing. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, it's as though we have had consciences that are seared with a branding iron. And the truth of the matter is, the reason for the cross is that every last one of us has sinned. And you may be saying, well, my sin's better than someone else's sin. That's not the issue. There was a transaction made, the just for the unjust. And the only way for us to come to God is by having that transaction. You have to know Jesus personally to have it apply to you. It doesn't come by you knowing the truth. It comes by you knowing the Savior. Now, church, this is important. And if you're listening and you don't know Christ, this is the moment I want to ask you, if you don't know personally Jesus Christ, these truths don't apply to you yet. They're just knowledge. That transaction has to be accepted. You have to say yes to the righteousness of Christ being placed into your account. You have to say yes to your sins being taken away and forgiven. You have to admit that you were a sinner. There's a reason that the Old Testament so focuses on us as sheep. The prophet Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to its own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Who's the him? The Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You see that wanderlust towards sin is in every last one of us. Some of you are probably saying, man, I just want to go outside. I want to go for a walk. I want to go for a hike. I want to go surf. I want to ride my skateboard. I want to go to the beach and ride my bike. I want to go sit in a restaurant. You want to wander. What is bothering you right now is that you can't get out of the house and go very far without having a mask on. But the truth of the matter is, we all have had wandering hearts and we all have wandered away from God. We've all gone astray. And God is saying to us right now, now is the time for us to get close to the Lord. 
Now is the time for us to realize that what God did at the cross through accepting the sacrifice of his son was to bring us to him, to keep us from wandering. That's one of the things that happens when we give our life to Christ. Now, I want to share something with you. I'm so grateful right now for the people who are in the medical profession, doctors and nurses and paramedics and police and firefighters, all those people. They're in the life-saving business. And they're saving lives right now as they battle this virus. Their job is to save people, to protect lives, to protect property. But can I tell you, that is futility at its most extreme if we don't deal with the problem of sin. Because if we don't deal with the problem of sin, you can save every life and they will one day die eternally. You can save every building and one day it will perish. And so the cross is a permanent solution to the problem of sin to bring us to God. A fifth thing, Jesus actually died. He was born in the flesh as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. And he died as a 33-year-old man on a cross outside of the city walls of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha. And in between those two places, he dwelt among us. He was just like me. He was just like you. And though he was fully God, he dwelled in a tent. And that's why John 1 tells us that he became flesh and tented or tabernacled or dwelt among us. Jesus knows the pain that you're going through right now of isolation. Jesus knows what you're going through as a human because he's gone through every bit of it. We worship a God who knows what it's like to be wounded. We worship a God who knows what it's like to be separated from his father. We worship a God who absolutely understands and was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet he himself never sinned. Never. And that God in human flesh gave up his life, the Bible says. He committed his spirit to the hands of his father. He was not killed or murdered. He gave up his life in our place. In that sense, that death was not permanent for him. And it is not permanent for you or for me. Why? Because notice the end of verse 18, 1 Peter 3, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you see it? Oh, he died. 
And that death was penal and that death was priestly. That death brought us to God. That death was the just one for the unjust one, me. But that death was once and for all, for all. And here's the good news. He died so that we could live. He he died so that we could live. And in that sense, he was our substitute. He was our substitute on Good Friday. But he's our representative forever. He's both those things. And I'm going to ask you in this moment to gather together the elements of communion and we'll partake of those elements in a moment. But let me share this with you. This work, this transaction that happened, this substitution where Jesus took my sins and gave me his righteousness rendered unnecessary any action on my part. It's an action of grace. It comes to me by faith. It's not of my own works. It's a gift from him. It's a true substitution. It's not merited on my behalf because I've earned it. It was given as a gift by one who loves me. And in that sense, he is forever now my representative. So when I sin, Jesus said, got that, Father. It's forgiven. And when God sees me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. And it is forever that way. There will never be a time when I run out of God's grace through Christ, my Lord. I'm not going to get to that place where it's, well, that's just too many. Jesus is forever my representative. He is forever my substitute. And because of those things, one day, I'm going to step out of time and into eternity, and I don't have to fear when that happens. If I were to get coronavirus and die, I know in whom I have believed that he is able to keep that which he has committed unto the day of Christ Jesus. I'm going to heaven. That's why Good Friday is good. And if you're joining us right now and you've watched this service online and you've reached this place to where you're saying, I don't know that I know the Lord Jesus. You need to know the Lord Jesus. Because what we're about to do in partaking of communion is for people who know 
the Lord Jesus and have accepted his sacrifice in our place. He paid my penalty. He was the just one for my injustice. He is the one who sacrificed himself for me. He died in my place. And so I ask you, do you know Jesus? If you don't, you can right now. And I want to take just a moment and I, and I want to ask that if you're watching and you want to know Christ and you don't know him yet, you haven't met the King of Kings, there are pastors waiting online. They will pray with you. And so right there on your screen, you can see the button. Just log on and say, I want to know Jesus. Would you pray with me? And for the rest of us, as Jesus cried out from the cross, remember what he said. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. He said, woman, behold your son. And as we focus, he said, my God, my God, why? Well, the reason that he did it, the why is answered in me and in you. Our thirst was quenched because he took the fires of hell for us. That's why he said, I thirst. When he said it is finished, he didn't mean it was almost done. He meant it is absolutely complete. You can have eternal life today. And once you have eternal life, it is eternal life for eternity. And it was then that he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus knew where he was going. And we know where we're going. And so if you'd take your cup, and Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, so important to remember this, on the night that he was betrayed, on the very evening that he was facing the cross, on the night that Peter denied him, on the night that he was arrested, on the night that he was falsely tried six times, on the night that he was brought before Pilate and then taken to Herod and then back to Pilate and then before Annas and Caiaphas, before the Sanhedrin, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he took the cup. And as he took the bread first and he broke it, and he looked at the disciples with Judas sitting next to him, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. It was then afterwards that Jesus took the cup of redemption, the cup after the supper, 
And he said, this cup, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the remission of your sins. My perfection for your imperfection. My justice for your injustice. My goodness for your evil. As often as you drink of this cup, you speak forth, you show forth, you tell of the Lord's death until he comes. Partake of the cup together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you went through that separation with your son, Jesus, that you, Jesus, loved us so much that you watched as your father turned his back on you as you bore our sins on the cross. Lord, as you brought us into the marvelous light by paying the price for our sin, God, we thank you that we love you because you first loved us. We thank you that we're forgiven because you, Jesus, paid the full price for our sins. Nothing was held back. That what you paid on Calvary's cross was the full measure for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And because of that one day, we will have what we know and describe as the fullness of eternal life will step out of time and into eternity forever to be with you. And it's because of that that you, Jesus, said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who lives and believes in me, that one day you'll perish, shall have eternal life. Lord, we believe in that eternal life and we thank you that it was the cross that made it possible. We look forward to Easter Sunday, to the resurrection. Lord, thank you for paying the price for our sins. We ask all of this in the blessed name of our Savior, the sacrifice, the one who gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.